Okay, so why don't you guys buckle up and enjoy the ride because we're gonna have some fun. Going green. And Abby said, you shouldn't commit illegal acts except perhaps at night and with your parents' permission. Your advice is making less sense than usual. Well, the important thing is family and friendship, honesty, values, and no one got arrested. You see this jerk? This is the same thing. Kropotkin was the same jerk, and Bakunin was the same jerk. Not good. Not good, I'm telling you. Was a, he was a very good dancer. This is a low life. George Orwell, who definitely didn't like socialism of any kind, warned us against it. He wrote books that said that totalitarianism is bad and that sticking with old ideas is good. I got news for you. You gotcha. The yeah. population again. I did not know that. I, I never that. thought you'd lose a Stalin debate. I, 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 you never expect to walk into one. Sure. Avoid Marxism. Or telling her you're a Trotskyite. Trotskyist. Only Stalinists would call a Trotskyist a Trotskyite. And I'm not a Trotskyist anymore. I'm a Maoist. Relentlessly anti-Trump and relentlessly pro-somebody like Obama. I'm not pro-Obama. I've been a critic of Obama. I'm a critic of the Democratic Party. Because I'm literally a communist. Well, you know how it is. The main thing is to get those juicy likes and subscribes. And we can get some more of that sweet, sweet communist money rolling in. You know how it is, bro. Gotta get that communist out there. Gotta make it to the top. Just imagine somebody saying under cannibalism or under slavery or under dictatorship. Well, there's nothing you can do about it. Well, they'd be wrong. There is something you can do about it. You can get beyond these archaic systems and move closer and closer to fulfilling human capacities. And that's what we need to do. Hello and welcome to the Three Left Show. I am your host, Daniel Platt. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and re revolutionary left perspective. For the curious or the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy, discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself. The meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. We proudly wave the flags of the Three Lefts. Now, um... I, I'm having some dental trouble right now, actually. Uh, this is literally in the hour before starting the show I was eating. And um, I suppose background first. I uh, When I was a lad who did very silly things, who did not think things through, uh, when I was a lad of, uh, maybe it was uh, like fifth, sixth grade, it was late elementary school. I was playing on playground equipment that's like made of cast iron, and I cracked my front tooth in half, hurt a lot, after a few years of bondings uh, that would only last like a year, maybe less, I eventually, you know, uh, my parents uh, had the money to uh, actually put on something much more expensive, a veneer, and wouldn't you know it, after how many years it's been, 20, let's say it's 20-ish uh, years, uh, it has given out. So uh, the bonding has not, so it's not painful. It's the, the the enamel of my front tooth is still covered. But if you can, if you're listening closely, you may notice it's like I've got a big gap, you know, the you know between my uh, teeth, and uh, I'm making my mouth is making way more saliva than I usually do. So uh, this might be really too more too annoying to do the full show. I may just do half a show. We'll see how that goes. Since in the future, I may roll back to one hour. I really hate doing one hour as far as just all the things I want to talk about. But if I'm consistently making a show every week, or maybe I'm doing half a show live on radio and then another half that's on the web, 
away, so I'm not like editing it as much for the podcast. And the podcast is just an hour. It's probably way more listenable if it's just an hour podcast. And then I'll have to actually be more discriminating about what I talk about, what I focus on, or um, as uh, other podcasts do when they read things, they're only reading half of it or a paragraph or two, and then they just talk about reacting to the main thesis of it uh, rather than giving you the entire content of it. But I feel like you miss a lot if you only get uh, a synopsis. I mean, you, if you get a synopsis of a bunch of things, it's still better than getting the synopsis of one thing. But even better if someone reads most of an article or an essay to you and is able to kind of go through it all. Because um, otherwise, you get like live streams where they do kind of cover like a half hour video. It's three hours long because they're just reacting to every sentence. So apparently I was not talking that much the last hour. I just had like a web call meeting with other producers. And uh, yeah, it's uh, having to constantly talk. It's going to be trouble, especially since my job involves talking to people on the phone. But hey, it's not a, like the whole tube is out. Uh, it could have been replaced with gold back in the day. It's the only thing that would really last. But anyway, uh, what is this episode of the Three Left Show going to be about? Well, uh, election day is next week, and you may have noticed, if you are a avid listener, hi all three of you, <laughs> I haven't talked about elections all year. There's a reason for that. Uh, since the last one, I've been really despondent about them. You know, it's uh, I ran for mayor in 2017. This was the year after Trump was elected, so I was really looking forward to doing it. I was really looking forward to running for mayor. I had a pretty good time doing it. It wasn't a, a chore. But now when I think about running for office again, it feels like a chore. Especially after last year, because the Greens did so horribly. We lost a ballot line, so the petitioning is so much greater. But it also means you're just, you require to do that many more doors. Talk to that many more constituents. Uh, actually build a base, or at least learn about your constituency. So I'm talking about elections this time. We'll see how much, I have a lot of stories here. So we'll see how much I summarize. Um, I'll rush myself maybe a little because there's a really long piece uh, about reforms to elections. Maybe I'll not talk about that one. Maybe I'll talk about the one next time. Uh, although next time, meaning live next Tuesday, will be election night. And I pretty much just can acquiesce to doing live election coverage with a panel. So it won't really be my show. It will just be Albany election night coverage. To you people who don't live in Albany, you don't need to care. Though, whatever, if you just like me, but I may not even be involved. Uh, I don't know. Have the night off. I'll probably need it with a bottle of Jack. I don't really drink that, but... But I wanted to talk about some good election news, mostly election politics and electioneering, like or election organizing. So I'll cover all of that before I cover actual election reforms, because let's face it, our election system are, quote, quote, representative democracy. It's totally, woefully outdated, completely out of date. Everyone's disenfranchised for the most part. Um, it's a real pain in the neck just talking about it sometimes. It, it can be really depressing, unless you have a campaign to push. And wouldn't you know it, that's what half of the stories I have right now are about. But first... It's really distracted before the show, because I may have to deal with that. You know that nightmare where your teeth, like, come out of your mouth? It's like, it feels like that happened. 
Okay. Uh, so this is from Jacobin. Uh, when you squint, you know, on the right day, it looks like a CIA op to de-radicalize the left. But headlines like these kind of make me double-take and think otherwise. Uh, like, you know, Jacobin, they're, they're okay. I mean, they're not, like, as radical revolutionary. Um, you know, they're always about, like, dementrism for the most part. Or we need a, a dirty break. Uh, we need to enter the party, but dirty break with them once we're strong enough. Well, when are you going to be strong enough? I mean, you elect enough. Sock Dems and Democratic Socialists to Democratic legislative seats. And eventually, you know, is, is the is the goal being the party or is it breaking from the party once you've elected enough? Because once you elect enough, you, you're you in you're in it. You're in it. To testament to independent party politics, or at least multi-party politics, um, I've got two stories uh, that involve European left-wing parties, although the Greens aren't really as left-wing as they used to be in Europe since they actually have left-wing, uh, like, actual socialist and communist parties there. Speaking of which, Jacobin will cover, more so than any Greens, by the way. Uh, headline is, The Communist Party just won the elections in Austria's second biggest city. That is the city of Graz. Or Gra- Graz. So it's an interview with Robert Koisler. So I got uh, last Sunday's elections in Graz, Austria. The Communist Party romped to victory for the first time in history. Jacobin spoke to one of its winning candidates about how the party built a red fortress in the city. The social experiments of Red Vienna, long associated with Austria with the historic high points of social democracy, recent decades have instead seen this alpine republic become a laboratory for right-wing populism. But in Gars, the city's country's second biggest city after Vienna, it's to the north of it, there is an alternative to the reactionary trend. In this Sunday's elections, the Communist Party of Austria initials KPO, secured an unprecedented victory, winning 29% of the vote. With the defeat of the conservative Austrian People's Party, communist Ilk Kar is now expected to become mayor. Their striking success in the city, at odds with its marginal presence in national politics, owes to years of community engagement rooted in a steadfast class politics. Its progress wouldn't have been possible without dedicated activists like 34-year-old Robert Koisler, who was second on the KPO list in this election. In 2017, he became the youngest person ever to be elected to the Gars City Senate, since then serving as head of the Department of Health and of Caregiving at the Department of Social Services. Ahead of Sunday's vote, Koisler spoke with Jacobin's Adam Baltmer about how the KPO built this unlikely red fortress. Okay, now we're into the meat. So this goes back to past episodes where I've talked about uh, on-the-ground organizing, ways of, like, when when referring to community activism that's, like, doing mutual aid, unionizing, uh, just being involved in various movements. But turning those movements, uh, instead of just petitioning those currently in office, who usually do not care to actually... Uh, address your needs or desires or your goals. Um, you be- better to actually elect people from these movements, and you can't do that without a electoral vehicle, which is why having an independent party or your own party, even if it's just on a local level, which is kind of the case here. Like, yeah, the communists don't have a national presence, but in this one city, they've uh, coalesced or conglomerated, whatever. They've been plugging at activism for who knows how long, 
uh, last decade maybe, uh, doing community projects and whatever, and uh, and that's done more. So let's, let's dig into what they've actually done, uh, not just my uh, projection. So in Austria's national elections, the KPO normally earns 1% of the vote, similar to the Greens. In Gars, however, the capital of the state of Stereia, party does considerably better, earning 20% since the early 2000s. Why is the KPO so successful in Gars in particular? So in Gars is spelled G-R-A-Z. Gars. Uh, this has to do with a political orientation going back to the early 1990s, a time of profound crisis for the communist movement. Oh, yes. Uh, and a end of the Cold War. But then, back then, one of the mottos of the KPO in their state was a useful party for everyday life and for the grand objectives of the labor movement. In line with this maxim, the party pursued a highly concrete politics, especially for tenants. Tenant organizing, something DSA chapters and many other socialists are doing across the country, or at least aiming to do. In particular, Ernest Kuggenegger did tremendous work here establishing for himself a very positive reputation among the population. Kartdeniger was always there to help others and lend an ear to their problems. To this day, people still tell stories about him even fixing things in their apartments, and he also politicized the issue of housing. Now it reminds me of uh, my local congr councilmen, council people, who do random lawn chores for constituents, and that's how they earn votes, or maybe they don't earn votes, but they do it anyway. I mean, when I think of someone in political office, I prefer them work on actual, like, legislating, writing things, or organizing for some particular reform. Um, but you can't really do any of those things if you don't have popular support. So it's like you have to spend all your time just doing favors for people. When does the reform happen? You know, That's my kind of chicken-and-the-egg question, quandary. At the beginning of the 90s, 1990s, many developers tried to clear entire houses of tenants, sometimes with extremely draconian methods such as removing windows from building entrances in January, allegedly because they were sending them away to be repaired. And no better time to repair windows than dead of winter. In 1991, an emergency tenants hotline was established as the first point of contact for people having trouble with their landlords. Legal counseling for victims of speculators, as they were then called, also was also set up on Kandenegger's initiative. Out of this interplay of very concrete help and legal support, the KPO was able to make a name for itself. So in America, it's mostly since the the sixty, you know, the age of the sixties, or in the last, you know, in our current political age, uh, it has not been. It's always been parties in the past that have done a lot of social programs, that and or churches. Not moves, not so much, or move, movements themselves, but then the movements would be sort of organized or disorganized, or a lot of smaller organizations. It'd be decentralized, which has kind of been a since the mid-century goal of the left to have decentralized things, not to concentrate power, to be skeptical of big power, big government, uh, because of well, for the reasons you can probably uh, imagine. But but what my point is here, in America, we have nonprofits that do the work described here. But nonprofits are kind of bound legally to be nonpartisan, to not take overall political uh, stances uh, to who should be in office. They're kind of restricted that way. 
and I, I get maybe it's brilliant strategy on the ruling class in the past to ensure that any social problems are addressed by these non-political entities, or if they're going to be funded by the county, as I, I believe the Albany United Tenants uh, does this kind of work with the tenant hotline and such and legal aid. Uh, and they're actually partly funded by the county, which means like, yeah, since you get public money, you can't be partisan. Now, obviously, Europe has a much different culture as well as everywhere, everywhere else. And that's kind of part of being America to actually not be political or partisan or something like that. It, of course, it's not really true, but it's it's how things kind of usually are. Uh, but in this case, the party, a party, a left-wing party is the one doing the initiative. You know, they're not campaigning for office yet, or they have, or they do that too, but then they also do these initiatives. A major campaign against high rent prices in public housing followed several years later. At the time, even in public housing, it wasn't unusual for people to pay up to 55% of their income on rent. So the KPO introduced a bill in the city council stipulating that no one living in public housing would have to pay more than a third of their income in rent. Like many other bills from the KPO, it was rejected by all other parties. Okay, so they must have had somebody on the city council already at this time, uh, but obviously a minority. The party then presented the city council with a petition in accordance with Australian popular law containing 17,000 signatures and reintroduced the bill. This time, it passed. So having overwhelming amount of signatures does seem to have some effect. But again, you've, you've gathered political, popular will behind you. That means it's not just names on paper. It's also people, uh, my portion of those people will show up and make noise and so on. And also that if you don't pass this, you better make sure, you know, we are going to challenge you. You're not unchallengeable. And these 17,000 uh, suggest that we'll have a lot of support uh, and momentum going in because we're going to run on this. And that's politics. That's good politics. What do, what do Democrats in the national level run on? not being Republicans. And Republicans run on all kinds of nonsensical things, moral panic issues. Meanwhile, they both were obviously blind or do corporate will, capitalist will, the will capitalist. Which capitalists? Good question. Refer to my last two episodes. In the following election in 1998, marked the KPO's first major breakthrough at the polls with close to 8% of the vote. Kettenegenger was given the Department of Housing by the ruling parties, who expected him to fail in his role. But things turned out differently. In fact, he was able to get a fair amount done, such as make sure that each public housing unit had its own toilet and bathroom. Apparently they didn't before. And then in 2003, oh, I, I guess if you have public housing units and then they have like a, a shared bathroom, you know, like, a, like a dorm. Uh, and then in 2003 election, the party achieved 21%. Way better. Uh, this all shows that left-wing politics requires endurance and grassroots work. It also shows that parliamentary functionaries can use extra parliamentary pressure to push things forward that would otherwise not be possible given the power relations at work, you know, being in a minority. So next question. You just touched upon not only how the KPO has built support in GARS, but also how it has influenced city politics from its role as an opposition party. What other examples are there in, of that? One of the most enduring achievements of the KPO came in 2004 when it blocked the privatization of Gaza's public housing stock. At the time, the conservative uh, and social democratic parties of Austria 
And indeed, all other parties on the city council agreed on privatizing. Sadly, around the same time, a red-red government in Berlin, a coalition between social democrats and the predecessor of Delinke, they also privatized apartments owned by the city. Although we were still a small party at the time, we managed to gather more than 10,000 signatures for our petition against doing that. Well, according to Styrian law, is a necess- that is the necessary number for official referendum at the ballot box, about 96% voted against selling off the housing units. To this day, all parties have kept their hands off public housing. The issue of privatization has never resurfaced. Even though we've never been one of the ruling coalition parties, we've held offices in the city executive since since 1998 because of the proportional representation system. Your ear should be burning when you hear that. Which allocates city senate seats on the basis of the party's vote shares. Currently, our party chair, Ilko Carr, leads the Department of Roads and the Department of Transportation Planning. And I'm responsible for health and caregiving. We've had successes in both of these areas, in spite of the difficult conditions of the past four and a half years under a right-wing coalition government. That's OVP and FPO. Don't really need to really know that, but hey. We built new bicycle paths, improved public transport by expanding the tram network and creating new bus lines. And we've introduced the so-called Graz Care model, according to which care-dependent elders receive allowances from the city so that they can be cared for at home and don't have to move into nursing homes. So it's a city-organized home health aid program. But the program seems to be universal, uh, at least for the elderly. So that's that's really great. Because right now, in America, it's uh, based on insurance. So based on how much insurance you get is how many hours of caregiving you could uh, be given or you get and how well the caregiver will be paid. This is because I actually do home aid work myself. The election coverage was dominated by speculation about which parties will join the governing coalition. In your opinion, what was the decisive issues? Only very rarely have voters raised the issue of political coalitions to me. Rather, conversations at information stands tend to be about how people have received help from us in highly concrete ways. And that is absolutely a major bonus that we have as the KPO. Now, of course, you mentioned something that, oh, God, if I was, like, just doing party outreach was, like, my job, I would set up an info stand, you know, on various street corners, various times a day. I would make it my job. Now, at the moment, it's like it would have to be, you know, it's a volunteer gig. It's something that you do sometimes or certain nights. Do It could be a once-a-week thing of setting up an info stand. Info stand is basically, you know, it's tabling. It's tabling. But so often, it's like, oh, do you have permission to table here? Uh, do you have a permit to table here? I think, the more I think about it, the more I think um, APD seems to let tabling without a permit slide, depending on how disruptive you are. But there's this particular woman in my in my neighborhood that's really disruptive, and she loves picking fights. As soon as you tell her, like, what are you doing here? You you don't table here. You're being too loud. She just goes, well, she goes off. And, uh, yeah, so it's more about the internal politics, the legacy of communism. Communism! I mean, but they help people in concrete ways. Every year, thousands of people visit... Uh, Elka and myself in our office hours. There, we see how we can best help them, whether by providing them with legal advice, 
helping them fill out applications, or giving them direct financial support. KPO representatives in the city senate and the Styrian Landtag, that's parliament in German, voluntarily donate two-thirds of their salaries to people in need. Something I would also do if elected to office. For us, this is definitely not charity. Rather, it is a form of politics oriented around a basic socialist communist principle that goes back all the way to the Paris Commune. I think it's hard to speak genuinely empathetically with someone who works full-time at uh, 1,200 euros a month when you earn three, four, five times that much. After all, as Marx said, being determines consciousness. In addition to the failure of the far right-wing, of the right-wing government coalition and their social policy, I would name rapidly progressing urban sprawl as another one of the major issues. In Grars, construction plans are approved and green spaces given away extremely previously because of the last mayor, Siegfried Nagel, who resigned this Sunday, is quite friendly towards investors. Many people are massively disturbed by this. Not few have even said to me, because of the building frenzy the last few years, my whole life I've never voted for any party but the OVP, uh, for any party but the communists, but enough is enough. So far, the KPO's success in Graz has not been replicated in other cities in Austria, but do you think that a national or even international political movement can be built up through municipal politics? Naturally, we don't pre-socialism in one city or something like a municipal transition to socialism. But in general, I am convinced that left-wing politics needs to be developed from below, and that means establishing roots in the level of the municipality, so it's not an end in itself. But even the shop floor, or being in constant contact with people, it's important to engage in areas where you can show concretely that you are a useful force. And workers' parties can learn a lot from this kind of engagement. In recent decades, the left may have neglected this insight somewhat. People have thought, we have the sophisticated texts, we have the volumes, and with these we'll be able to deal with the world. But only through constant exchange with people can you find out where the real problems are. If you and your comrades want to work together to change and improve people's conditions, this knowledge is central. Now my only comment on that really great sounding thing, it's also something a lot of other Democrats and activists say, who are not radical, they don't have radical politics, they definitely don't call themselves communists. But again, it's like, well, they call themselves communists, they're a communist party, uh, but besides being like more left-wing about, you know, preserving public housing and, <clears throat> and, and addressing people's needs directly and not through capital investment, it feels like sometimes you get bogged down in the helping of people and then you're not building that next world, like the next thing. You know, the, the city that is the egalitarian society. But, of course, as I describe it, that's exactly what doing that is. So, and it's also what past revolutionary parties did. There's just this point where they're developed enough like they've taken enough cities or like you know the biggest cities and that's a that's where you you have significant political leverage to do more than just help people out with the day-to-day uh but still concrete stuff but to start really going after root problems like like land speculation private property ownership that's you know absentee ownership let's frame it that way and so on and and global uh supply issues 
So the other side of it, um, not the other side, but uh, another story that's uh, less um, organizing interview, but just simple news flash from BBC News. I just wanted to cover quickly how um, the Scottish Greens have won a record eight seats in their best re- ever result. So the Greens in Scotland are part of the now um, new coalition government with the SNP, that Scottish National Party, which is a pro-independence majority. So Loomis Slater was elected on the Lothian list, and her fellow co-leader Patrick Harvey was elected on the Glasgow list. So if you don't understand that, basically, instead of one-on-one races, which is entirely like, our politics are like boxing matches. Instead, you have lists of candidates, and when you, you vote for the party, which, you know, and the list will tell you that this will be the person who's your representative if this party wins. So you vote for a party, and but this, and that's, you know, you're also voting for a person because it's the person who's campaigning for the party in your area. Because otherwise, uh, in America, parties are collections of candidates uh, instead of being what they really should be, political unions. I give you an example of what that you know that kind of looks like, uh, where you have someone running as a green, which is most people run as a green, and they or any independent candidate, and they don't really have, there's no institution behind them except maybe whatever institution they might directly be involved with, or if they personally build a coalition for their candidacy, if anything else, or it's a coalition. Of a for a social movement like BLM, or for housing rights, or, or you know housing coalition, housing coalition, and you step forward, you step up to be the candidate that represents that, so you uh, are able to get this coalition to endorse you.
So I'm definitely going to stop after uh, at the end of the hour. So this might be the only thing else I read, uh, which is just fine. Yeah, okay, I'll just, yeah, I'll limit it to that. So it's from The Nation, uh, and I'm reading this one in particular because it's older, from January of 2020. I've been holding this in the pocket for a long time. Every time I do a, um election episode, I kind of leave it to the end, and then I don't get to it. So now I will. What if we all ran for local office? And this is something to keep in mind uh, to all my listeners and also to uh, rip myself up a bit. A writer reflects on her mayoral run in a Connecticut town fighting climate change and big weapons manufacturing. Now, the nation is interviewing this person or publishing them, not so much, not because they're a green. No. They're a writer who happens to be running as a green. And that I don't like, but I'll take what I can get. Yes, he yelled, thrusting his fist in the air. We get to live in the mayor's house. My son's reaction when I told his two sisters and him that I was running for mayor of our town because the last line of my campaign, or became it. But in real time, I had to burst his bubble. Oh, Seamus, I said. The mayor just lives in his own house. There is no mayor's house. If we win, we'll be living in our own house, but it will then become the mayor's house. Seamus's reaction was indicative of his boundless competence in his mother and his seven-year-old ignorance of how the world re- actually works. But I held his reaction close when I was feeling less than sure of myself. When I was heading to my third campaign event of any day as a Green Party candidate and found myself eating popcorn for dinner at 9.30 at night, listening to my kids breathe in their sleep instead of reading the bedtime stories. I'll cut to the chase, though. I did lose. I'm not the mayor of New London, Connecticut. Now, on Tuesday, November 7th, when the polls opened at 6 in the morning, it was cl- cold and clear. It rained. She gives expression. Uh, she gives all this other detail. It's not quite important. I'll try to skip to the paragraphs out of needy. Let's see. She was running as a write-in. She was not just running as a third-party candidate in a Democratic town, but as one that wasn't even on the ballot. This, uh, but, but why? Was it because she was lazy? Because she didn't do things right? Well, the state had lost my paperwork. The Green Party hired a lawyer and sued but the judge ruled against us and declined to order the Secretary of State to put my name, uh, declined to order the Secretary of State to put my name on the ballot. Just another institutional wall. They could just lose your paperwork. That's why I really get, I really get burned when uh, some, someone who's done democratic politics is like, look, you know, if you run for office, you know, you, you could just, you, you build up your support and then you'll have the people to do it right. And if you don't do it right, then you're obviously not qualified to uh, run for office slash govern. Because you know, it's a professional job. It's just another professional job. I really don't like how this is across American society. People don't actually believe in self-autonomous, like autonomous self-government because they, they don't actually believe we can self-govern. Because if only, if only certain professionals, if qualified people who, you have to do all this work in the community to qualify as someone who should, who could make community decisions. And I get, yeah, okay, that's how it's supposed to be. But it limits it to so few people. It limits it to those who are extroverted. It limits it to those with the means to do all this community work. I mean, you can work a full-time job and do it, but I don't wish that fate on anyone. I don't like the implication that, you know, I'm the lazy one because I don't want to work 50-hour weeks, even if it's work that's, you know, for the common good. 
It shouldn't have to be that way. But I suppose, you know, as a in germ step, we do. But, you know, we have a centuries of people doing that. When do we get to slow down? Rant over. The campaigns even started in earnest after Labor Day. As I tried to balance work, family, and this new experience, this job and a half running for mayor. Oh, yeah. And there was my mother, the mother, the peace activist Elizabeth McAllister. But her book, her published book, is about her as a um, legacy peace activist. Through the campaign, I asked New Londoners the same questions over and over. What do you love about New London? What frustrates you about our town? What's the one concrete change that would improve your life? The answers were varied and often inspiring. Unexpectedly, I found myself back in school in a crash course, discovering what's wonderful and not wonderful about my chosen hometown in the age of climate change and Trump. I even learned a few things along the way. What follows is just a partial list. Uh, part one. Celebrity matters, even though it shouldn't. But I was in Georgia in one of my mom's hearings. I spent time with the actor and peace activist Martin Sheen. Standing next to the church where supporters of my mom were hand ladling out dinner, we shot a low-tech political ad. It promptly went low-key viral and signaled to the polls in low New London that something different might be happening. I know Martin Sheen is famous, and I love him as an actor and a person, but I wasn't prepared for how excited people would be about a 45-second clip of the two of us. As far as I can tell, it didn't get more people to vote for me, but boy, was it a conversation starter. Hmm. Note 2. Cultivated constituency. So this is like an echo of the last thing, but why not repeat? But in different forms. So you know that, hey, you know, this is this is how you do in America. The political scene in New London is more than well established. It's written in concrete. Go Democrat or go home. In our town of 27,000, set along the confluence of the Thames and Long Island Sound, only about 16,000 of us are registered to vote, and about three to 4,000 then turn, turn out in off-year local elections. That's the kind of proportion in everywhere in America. So before this election, there were about 70 Greens. Our party strategy was to bring out new voters, a great thought, but I had no idea how hard that would prove to be. I felt strongly that environmental and climate change issues should be reframed as relevant to the poor and working class of New London. So when, for instance, I talked about creating a more walkable city, I was careful to emphasize not just that it would be environmental plus, but that it would aid the working poor too. After all, they have to walk out of necessity. So safer sidewalks and a city infrastructure that takes walkers into account, including people in wheelchairs, limited sight and hearing, would be good. A good investment. Same was true with planting more trees. I had hoped that we would increase the local party membership to, from 70 to 100, but that didn't happen. We did add a few, a handful of new members and re-engaged some older ones. Call it the most modest of successes. Um, next point. Be nice and make your points. We ran an issue-focused campaign. I'm going to live in New London for a long time, and so are my opponents. I generally avoided taking pot shots at them, cultivating instead what I thought as a spirit of gentle disruption. I mean, there's some downsides to that, but there's also upsides to doing, to being the nice guy. Here's an example. Oh, yeah, okay, okay, yeah. The current mayor, all the department heads that the current mayor hired live outside of town, which goes against their own city's charter, by the way. But who cares, right? The incumbent claimed he did so to get the best, which sounded like he felt that there was no one in town good enough to run our departments. This is something my mayor has also said. At debates and forums, 
Well, of course, uh, they don't say that about hiring people from out of town, but they say that in, well, in two ways. Yes, um, in order to get the best, we need to be able to, you know, but this, this is an argument against rules that government employees do need to live in Albany, uh, which did pass. Uh, so I think that's mostly in effect, and it's been kind of increasing over time as more people who live in the suburbs have been, you know, aging out. But the other side is that we need to raise the salaries of city employees to attract qualified or quality people. Because, obviously, if you're going to make do things for the common good or the good of the city, you obviously go also going to be motivated by money. I, I don't like, I don't get that logic at all. I mean, I'm highly motivated to work for the betterment of the city. You can hire me at the current rate. I'm okay with it. Because it's not, it's not poverty wrote wages in the first place. So at debates and forums, I pushed back hard on that issue, insisting that it, I would hire locally, not just because the charter says so, but because not doing so sends a message to our kids that we aren't good enough. Such hiring practices also weaken our tax base, since some of the highest paying jobs in our community go to people who don't even pay property taxes here. It took time to learn how to be critical without being cranky and offer creative solutions to decades of short-sighted, reactive decision-making by a relatively unaccountable leadership, which might describe all local politics in America, with some exceptions. I also wanted to demonstrate that someone who wasn't a middle-aged white man could make a splash by running for mayor in our town. She goes about herself, and then she goes on about doing what you can. She talked about AOC running, uh, wearing out her shoes. I was invited to run by the local chapter of the Green Party. I said I would do so to promote issues and amplify voices that weren't getting a reasonable hearing, but that I couldn't run a 24-7 campaign, not with a job and young kids to take care of. I held as fast as I could to that commitment, but thinking back on the, by the conservative count, 14 public meetings, eight house parties, four television appearances, uh, three of them an hour long, three public debates with the other mayoral candidates, and daily check-ins with my campaign manager, party chair, and other candidates, I still feel exhausted. What I can't document is just what it meant to continually make myself visible in my community and connect with my neighbors. That, without a doubt, was the most rewarding and beautiful part of the experience. Handing out candy to trick-or-treaters, I ended up chatting with four high school football players who remembered my visit to their school earlier, earlier that week and told me their moms were voting for me. I was so happy I dumped the rest of our candy in their bags. I was walking to work one morning, balancing a birthday cake. Da, da, da. Oh, yeah, no, no, this is fine. I was um, I was walking to work one morning, balancing a birthday cake in one hand and trying to text with the other when a garbage truck driver pulled up next to me and the driver called out, I hope you win. Nobody cares about sanitation. We chatted for a few minutes as I assured him that I knew the funds for his department had been cut in recent years, that the Green Party platform supported more money for public works while establishing recycling and composting. He cheered. Two-tooted his horn. We both continued our day. And by the way, no one told me how much fun it would be to knock on doors and chat with strangers, each conversation offering me a yet more complex map of my community. So I just want to talk about briefly that door knocking is pretty much essential. Uh, as well as the tabling is a more passive way of doing it, but you're kind of depending on people walking by and having the free time to stop and chat with you. So sometimes in certain parts of town, and maybe the reason why I've held off on doing it, is that the only people that will chat are the 
quote unquote, you know, kooky people. I'm glad, or, yeah. Next note is peace begins at home. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so this, this part is all about how one of the main employers in town is one of the big, uh, military industrial companies that, uh, and they, they have a place where they build submarines there. And, yeah, it came up a few times. And and she goes and she goes through some of her answers in one of the debates. And let's see. One irony struck me that night as my opponents labored through their climate change answers. Our debate happened the day after the Ohio Democratic presidential debate, during which not a single question was asked about climate change. And that night it rained so hard that a restaurant three blocks from the river's edge had water pouring in the back door and out of the front. The third debate held the senior center was less formal than the other two, moderated by an attorney, who gave us about 20 minutes to use as we wanted. That night, I pointed out that the dozen or so departments in the city's governing structure were only run by women and other issues of import. Asked, as I often was, about my inexperience in politics, I talked about the toolbox of skills I had amassed in an active life, as well as a life as an activist, including community organizing, consensus building, deep listening, not to speak of a sense of deep accountability. I feel for my community. You don't have to be a lawyer or have a master's in business admin like his her two appointments, opponents to work effectively with New London's communities. In fact, professional expertise and ego can sometimes get in the way, no one often does, of representing community interests and truly grasping needs, no less meeting them. In the end, on that rainy election day in November, about Close to 400 people voted for me. It may not sound like much after all those months of effort, but that was about 10% of the vote. As a writing candidate, people had to know me, truly want to vote for me, remember the writing process, and then do it correctly. So each of those 394 votes felt hard won indeed. People keep asking me if I'm going to run again. Who knows? The next election isn't for four years. It feels like a lifetime from now, and believe me, I have plenty to do in the meantime. Now, that was the same thought I had back in 2017, that, okay, next time I'm going to be ready. I've been far from ready. I was not in a position to run for mayor this year again as much as I've wanted to. Factor one, we didn't have the ballot line anymore. I would have to work a lot harder to get on the ballot, so it wouldn't be a, although it wasn't last time, a a willful thing to do either. Uh, Point two. I was incredibly demoralized after uh, the last election. Uh, and maybe I'll, I'll close out the hour early, but I will uh, basically uh, quickly the reflections on the Green Party's 2020 presidential campaign. This is both Hawkins and Walker. 2020 was the most difficult year yet for a Green Party presidential run because of the lesser evil dynamic was stronger than ever before. Most progressives who considered a vote for the Greens were more concerned with removing Trump from office. Anybody but Trump was the dominant view on the progressive side of the political spectrum, whether it's in the media or on the streets. Our campaign was blacked, blanked out by the liberal corporate media as well as progressive independent media like Democracy Now!, Common Dreams, The Nation, The Intercept. This dynamic was reflected in open letters from progressive public intellectuals advocating no votes for the Greens and the refusal publications that ran these letters to print our responses. So it was a completely one-sided conversation. So much for fair and balanced 
in the progressive media. And like to us, they're not. In 2004, yet another year when the lesser evil dynamic was particularly high after Bush invaded Iraq, many of these same progressive luminaries called for a safe state strategy of voting for Kerry in the battleground states, but Green in the safe states because Kerry was still a pro-war candidate. In 2020, these same people put forward a no-state strategy, voting no for the Greens in all votes for Biden. It was so bad that a number of lifelong independent socialists advocated for this no-state strategy, who in the past had regarded voting for the capitalist Democrats to be as beyond the pale as crossing a picket line to scab on strikers. The official Federal Elections Commission count gave us 405,000 votes, or about 0.3%. This vote is much higher than Greens received in 04 and 08, but substantially lower than Ralph Nader's in 96 and 2000, and as well as Jill's in 2016. 2020 approaches the vote Jill Stein received in 2012. Each election has a different dynamic. For example, the 2016 dynamic of the two most unpopular major party candidates in polling history running for the open seat resulted in the higher votes for minor parties, including the Greens. Far more of our candidates, and of course then we get blamed for whoever did win slash lose. Yeah, so far more than our candidates, our message, or a campaign execution, it was this larger dynamic in each election that determines our results. But even this range of results from 0.1% in 2004 and 08 to the high, close to 3% that Nader got in 2000, it's still marginal to the overall contest. The biggest obstacle Green face is plurality voting, which pushes progressives who would prefer to vote Green to settle for the centrist corporate Dems to stop the far-right Republicans. The enduring power of this lesser evil dynamic is shown by the fact that in the 46 presidential elections over 180 years since the abolitionist Liberty Party challenged pro-slavery Democrats and Whigs in 1840, independent left uh, presidential challengers have won over 4% of the vote only five times, when the left did exceed four, with the 10% that Martin Van Buren did with 5% in 1852, and so on, so any list of people have done so. And it's good. The good news out of our campaign is the enthusiastic support we received and continue to receive from young people who support our eco-socialist Green New Deal. Their messages tell us that they are disappointed we didn't receive more votes, but urge us to keep vote running. Some of them because they'll be old enough next time to vote for us. They want to fight for their futures. They know that the Biden administration has no solutions to climate systemic racism, or dismal education and economic opportunities. We are getting more speaking opportunities post-election than during the election, particularly from high school and college climate justice and racial groups. These young people are the future of the Green Party. So where do we go from here? We urge a focus on campaigns for local offices and for ranked choice voting. And then he repeats the uh, factoids. But the Greens have won over 1,200 elections over the years, we have about 100 Greens in elected office today. Our focus should be on multiplying these numbers of local Greens into the thousands as we go into the 2020s. Achieving this goal will require local Green parties to be constant, consistently engaged, community issues based in deep and year-round deep canvassing. He says that year in, year out, still haven't done it. This radio show is my substitute. And sometimes it feels woefully inadequate but at the same time, incredibly necessary. 
because it's also what was missing when I ran for mayor. I could do all the canvassing I wanted, but I was not going to be able to at least reach everybody in a soft way because you kind of need to do both. People need to be aware you're running, and then when you talk to them, they're actually wanting to talk to you. And local media wasn't doing it. And then he lists the number of active ranked choice voting reform campaigns going. There's about, what do you say, 45 states now have active campaigns for it, and so on. It encourages all radicals to be engaged in this. Okay, Dan Platt here for the Three Left Shout Back. Just to kind of wrap up, because um, I cut off way too fast. Just want to do my um, housekeeping. My profound thanks for listening to this hour of the three laughs. Uh, skill more important than talking, or as important as talking. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas you have for the show. Uh, so please send them to my socials. They're on Facebook, there's Twitter, um, and Instagram as well. I just created an Instagram account, which is just my account. But apparently you can make as many accounts as you want, and maybe that's the thing people like about uh, Instagram, that it's like making a lot of different pages, and they're all just very, like... A click away. This program is made as part made as part of an independent community radio station. So support us materially, along with many any other donation or time you may, may be able to give if you live in the Albany area, or membership especially to the WCAALP family at GrandArts.org. Uh, you can also support uh, this show with your time by telling others you believe will be interested about it, sharing my posts on social media. Uh, liking and sharing pages as you do. Um, click that bell, whatever link, you know, just be aware. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps, but a full archive of the podcast, all 131 episodes, uh, along with show notes uh, and about myself, are found at 3 Uh Don't forget the uh, HTTPS semicolon backslash www. Less.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here in practice yourself. So be well, keep it rad, keep waving the flags of the three laughs.